Faith matters. Assalamu alaikum. You are listening to The Voice of Islam, where we bring you Faith Matters, a program devoted to taking questions on a variety of contemporary and religious issues, where you, our listeners, set the agenda by the questions you ask. You can send in your questions at faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And if you have Sky Digital, this program is also available for viewing on Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, channel 787. Alternatively, you can open it up on YouTube. Go to YouTube, put in the words MTA Online 1, Faith Matters, the name of the program, and the question you're after. And if you don't find the answer right there, you know what to do. Email us on The Voice of Islam on Faith Matters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And with that, it's my pleasure to welcome two regular scholars of the Amdiya Muslim community to Faith Matters. Assalamu alaikum, gentlemen. Welcome to Faith Matters again. Walaikum assalam Pleasure to welcome you both. In terms of a brief introduction, to my immediate right is Maulana Abdul Ghani Jahangir Khan Sahib, who's head of the French desk here in the United Kingdom. And to his right is, of course, Dr. Zayed Ahmed Khan Sahib, who's president of the Khazar Board, the Board of Jurisprudence here in the UK. Well, welcome to Faith Matters, gentlemen, and we'll get straight to it with a regular um, questioner on uh, Faith Matters, which is, of course, Dr. Muhammad Budhan Saab from Canada. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Sahib, and Jazakumullah for your question. An interesting question posed from uh, Dr. Sahib today. He talks, first of all, in historic terms, gentlemen, about the population of Arabia. And I think when he says Arabia, he means the Arabia that was rather than the Saudi Arabia of today. And he suggests that it, it currently it numbers in the region of about 20 million people. His question is, what would have been its population 1,500 years ago at the advent uh, of the time of the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him? And could you suggest any reason, or is there any sort of mathematical equation he's asking which you can attach to this? But perhaps before we go into perhaps a more technical element, if there indeed is one, if we reflect back to the time, Jangir Saab, of the time before, just before the, the coming of uh, the advent of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. What, who was, who, what was Arabia then? <clears throat> well, I mean, Arabia obviously was the whole peninsula, and there were different, different kingdoms there, there were different monarchs, there were representatives of other monarchs who were emperors um, uh, outside of Arabia as well, their vice-germans, etc., Obviously, the population at, the, at that time would have been quite low and probably would have been uh, situated within the tens of thousands. Um, we, we know that apart from the Arabs, there were also some Christians who, who were living there, some of whom were also Arabs, but there were also people of the Jewish faith there who were not Arabs, therefore, but who spoke Arabic. And there were some other peoples as well, you know, scattered here and there. But uh, the population was quite low. And what we do know at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, at the end of his mission, um, when he marched upon uh, the town of, of Mecca, he was with a large number of uh, followers, but even that was 10,000. So that wasn't a lot compared to what it is now, but now we're talking of millions. And uh, so therefore, you know, there, there, there wouldn't have been so many people then. And was Arabia at that time, I mean even now, if you travel to various parts, of what is the Arabian Peninsula, you will find Bedouin tribes. Tribal customs are very prevalent there. You still find a lot of communities who live very according to, if you go out, say, from uh, further out from Riyadh or Jeddah, 
you'll still find Bedouin tribes who are still living very much according to how their traditions <coughs> dictated. That's true. So there are a lot of uh, aspects of the life of then, mm -hmm. of yesteryear, that are still seen today. Mm -hmm. But um, it was a very different scenario then, of course, quite different from what we see now. Dr. Saab, just to bring you in on this as well, religion obviously was something which was followed and obviously today, uh, the, the straight comparison in the Arabia of then compared to the Arabia of today, the most predominant factor is that Islam is now the predominant religion of the whole peninsula. But perhaps for, from a historical perspective, uh, Jangi Saab's already referred to elements of Christianity elements of Judaism which were prevalent there. Were there other faiths present? I mean, we've heard of the Holy Prophet and how he tackled some of the pagan customs, mm -hmm. for example. Yes, there was quite a, a wide mixture of uh, people in Arabia at that time. And Jahangir Sahib rightly mentioned the Jewish tribes that we know were inhabiting Medina. Many of those were present there. There were Christians there. We know that the Holy Prophet wasallam. there was a, a, a party of Christians who came to see him and to discuss religion with him. But over and above that, we know that there were monotheistic Arabs who lived there, who actually believed in the oneness of God Almighty. And the family of the Holy Prophet wasallam, was from among those people who actually believed in the oneness of God. Uh, and also there were those people who were polytheists who believed in idols and the worship of idols. And as we know that the, uh, the, the house of God, which is now the house of God in, in Mecca, had 365 idols which were worshipped, uh, one, for, one for every day. Then there were people who worshipped the st stars, the Sabians. So there were people who actually had uh, these pagan connotations to them. And a wide mixture of these people actually lived in and around uh, the Hejaz, Mecca and Medina at that time, who came into contact with the Holy Prophet And it was through the ministry of uh, Islam that these people actually became Muslims. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, the vast majority of people during the lifetime of the Holy Prophet wasallam had actually converted to Islam and accepted Islam. So that when we saw that the fall of Mecca, uh, it was as Jahangir Sahib says, 10,000 people who actually marched into Mecca at that time. Just sort of maybe bringing this question to its <laughs> sort of uh, end really in terms of what we needed to ask. I mean, Dr. Saab asks about population and derivations and mathematical formulas. But we're just talking about population growth here, that the population naturally has evolved and it's grown and Islam has become a, the predominant faith of that particular region. And that's just very much, obviously, the natural design of God Almighty and how Islam was to evolve and indeed spread. Yes, it was. And it's very difficult to to extrapolate towards the past mm -hmm. from a starting point in the, you know, in the present, um, it's much easier to, to kind of predict for the future. For the future yeah. But you can, there are actually mathematical form formulae there, mm -hmm. but you need a starting population point, you know, mm -hmm. and you need a, a rate of growth, and then you can uh, you can kind of make predictions. But otherwise, we don't know what the, the rate of growth was you know, throughout the history, especially at that time. We do know that, for example, there was a census which was carried out in Medina, but that was only Medina. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it can be surmised that the Muslims afterwards as well continued with the census for the Muslims only. It wasn't a census which covered all the different religions, only to find out how many Muslims there were. And so we, we don't really have the figures for the whole of Arabia at that time. And it's very difficult to, to surmise. 
But the, the most we could say is that compared to the, you know, the, the surrounding areas, the population at that time must have been quite reduced compared to now. I mean, it is, it is said that the habitation of Arabia was perhaps 10 to 20,000 20, years since the habitation of Arabia, but the climate was very harsh mm -hmm. and still is at the moment, as, as we know. So there were only some small uh, villages that were inhabited and some larger cities were very few in number. Mecca and Medina are the two main cities that, that were around Arabia at that time. And the population, uh, as you mentioned, it was of two types. There was a sedentary population and a nomadic population in Arabia at that time. So we find that the sedentary population was in the cities and the nomads used to uh, actually travel around the whole of Arabia at that time. So it's very difficult to actually judge figures as far as that is concerned. But as Jangi Sab says, the, the figures were definitely very small. Gentlemen, Zakamala, I suppose the only added provision now, add a third dimension to the population is at that time they don't have many expats, but uh, <laughs> certainly the, if you look to Bahrain and Kuwait and the UAE now, um, one of the predominant factors indeed, in some cases, the majority of the population are people who are not of that particular country or region. Um, thank you, gentlemen. Um, we're going to move from uh, Makkah and Medina to Mars next for our next question. Not that we have a question from Mars, but it is relating to Mars. It is, but uh, we are going down under because our question comes from Misbah uh, Khalik, Assalamu alaikum, who's from Adelaide in South Australia, um, 18 years old, has been enjoying Faith Matters programs. Thank you, Misbah, for your kind comments. Question concerns life on Mars. Recently, NASA announced that volunteers, indeed, we followed some interest, um, that they want volunteers to go and live on Mars. But it's a one-way ticket, gentlemen. They say you can go, but there's no coming back, at least on, according to current science. What's Islam's perspective, Ms. Buzz, asking on the matter, and the colonization of Mars? And does Islam encourage this? Young yourself. <clears throat> well, it's strange enough that there are quite a few people who volunteered. And I understand there's quite a, a high percentage of Irish people for some reason well, well, someone of who Irish are willing descent, to go. Perhaps you can explain that as <laughs> well, well. But I find uh, it quite uh, inexplicable myself. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. I, I don't think I'd like to launch myself into, okay. on a, onto a one-way, uh, you know, trip like that. Okay. Um, however, there, there are there are things which the, the Holy Quran does state which are quite interesting. One of which is in uh, Surah At-Talaq, which is uh, chapter 65, verse 13, where Allah says that, uh, So he says, Allah is He who created seven heavens and of the earth the like thereof. Now, again, we've said this many times in Faith Matters, the, word, this, the, the figure seven indicates a large number, a recurring number in Arabic, and it could indicate a you know, very, very large number indeed. But the very fact that Allah says that He has made the earth and, and other earths like it mm -hmm. is an indication that there are other places where you can live. So there's a kind of a, you know, a hidden message there you know, to actually go and explore and find out where they are and then to colonize them. But even beyond that, Allah says in uh, Surah Ar-Rahman, this is chapter 55, verse 34. He says, 
لَا تَنْفُذُونَ إِلَّا بِسُلْطَانِ So he says, O company of jinn and men. And here it means, jinn means men of the, the um, upper classes. Mm-hmm. So the ones you, you, you rarely or seldom see because they're hidden you know, in the corridors of power, etc. So he's saying, O co- company of these you know, kind of rarer kind of men and the, the common mortals, if you have power to go beyond the confines of the heavens and the earth, then do go. But you cannot go save with authority. And the word sultan here can mean any kind of authority. It could mean with the help of a king, a monarch, a ruler. Mm-hmm. You won't be able to go unless there's somebody like that who's supporting you. Meaning it's going to be a very costly uh, venture. Mm-hmm. But also sultan can mean a very powerful logic, mm-hmm. which would mean mathematics. So without the help of that, you will not be able to go beyond the confines of the heavens and the earth. So Allah is actually inviting people of all types, whether they're of the ruling class or of the common, you know, ordinary people, to go beyond the confines of the heavens. And here the heavens means the, the closer heavens to earth, which Allah also says are seven, around planet earth, so to, to go beyond that. So there is a, quite an open invitation actually in the, in the Holy Qur'an, for people to go beyond the, uh, you know, to use their, their brains and to use the resources put, to, uh, you know, at their disposal by some of the rulers in the world <clears throat> to try and reach those other earths. This is what seems to be the message. Indeed. Um, this kind of voyages, you know, beyond frontiers, it makes us appear as if we're talking about Star Trek and some what have you. But nevertheless, what was at time something that was a piece of fiction is now increasingly becoming a reality. Undoubtedly, if you look at the space program over the last 40 odd years, you know, perhaps some would argue that it should have been at a more advanced stage. The concept of going out to space and returning on the same aircraft as it was, was thought impossible. Then you had the advent of the space shuttle, so on and so forth. And surely if we go further back in history, issues like, you know, the voyages of discovery that Columbus undertook, Magellan took, those were all almost done without the notion of knowing what lay before you and the thought of return. Surely if one is going on embarking, as Yungi Sub said, you know, beyond one's sort of knowledge and frontiers to actually find out what lies beyond, that's to be encouraged both from an Islamic perspective but also from in terms of science and advancement. Well, man has always been an explorer, and this is something that uh, Allah has actually promoted for man to do, is to go out there and to try to investigate and, and, and fathom out the creation of Allah. So man is the most sophisticated of creation of Allah, and is the most intelligent of creation of Allah, and has been, he has been given these powers by God himself, that he is able to progress. And we certainly have seen the advancement and the progression in all walks of life and in science in particular as, as far as that's concerned. So the aspect of going out and trying to investigate and find out new new horizons has always been something that man has been doing and through that obviously the world has actually been explored to a great degree. And now that man is, is going into the, into the heavens as it were in trying to investigate that is something that the Quran as Jahangir Sahib says does speak of but there are certain uh, limitations that are, are always going to be there as far as the Holy Quran is concerned that has been set there by, by God Almighty as well. The, as far as the mission to Mars is concerned it is said that it will take over 200 days to actually ar- arrive there 
and there are many obstacles that are going to be met by man before he can actually undertake this journey. One thing that uh, Jahangir Sahib alluded to was the cost of these missions. It is estimated that it could cost up to $500 billion for a mission to Mars for, for people to, to live on. But this is, this is the nature of man that he is actually trying to investigate fully to, to his full, full extent. But the other thing that is interesting to note is although we have seen the advancement and man has gone to the moon and has come back, he's likely to go to Mars and perhaps stay there and perhaps come back as, as science advances. But God says that you cannot go beyond the confines of a certain universe with permission or without permission. And the, it is said that the observable universe that we can see is perhaps 40 to 50 billion light years away. So that actually brings to our mind the greatness, the vastness of the creation of Allah. Mm. And Jangi Sab speaks of the, uh, of the figure seven, and that actually uh, encapsulates that this is actually infinity itself, and that man obviously will not be able to traverse those billions of light years away to actually go beyond that. So although there are limits that are, are, are put there, man is actually going to go to the, to the absolute ultimate limit and try to explore. So Islam encourages all of this uh, exploration because one man gets to know the creation of Allah. And that should always be kept in mind by, by man that there is a creator who has actually created all of this. And we are only a tiny dot in that creation. And the universe that we are able to actually go to is actually a little dot in that. So that does bring to man the greatness of Allah and his creation as such. Look, well, I, know. I suppose when you talk about billion light years, uh, 200 days <coughs> to Mars seems like a walk, walk to your local shops in, in that context. <laughs> Gentlemen, Jazakum alone, my thanks also to Misper for your question. Um, I know here in Britain we, we've got our first astronaut um, going out as well, and um, well, we should encourage all people, all communities, and we're yet to have uh, Andy Muslim in space, so... Inshallah, I'm sure they'll be... They'll the dentists be offered their services, yeah. <laughs> Not to my knowledge. I don't know. Well, there, there may be missionaries required on Mars, uh, Jahangir yes. Saab. So we're, we await that moment. Jazakum Allah, Misbah, for your question. Um, we're going to come back to Earth, so to speak, um, and uh, go to Ghana for our next question, which comes from Abdul Rahman uh, Aferzi. And he's asking about Hazrat Prophet Adam, um, the first human being, he says, created by Allah. And I think we need to just address that because he's suggesting in this question that indeed that Prophet Adam was the first human being. Jahangir Saab, is that fact? Um, we can say that there was a first Adam as in first human being. However, the because the, as we know, and we have said this before on Faith Matters, the Holy Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu said that there were several thousand Adams. So the, 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 the person who begins any cycle is called Adam. So the cycle of humanity as such would have had an Adam at its beginning. But the, uh, the Adam spoken of the most in the Holy Quran is actually the Adam the Prophet. So he's the first Prophet in our present 7,000 year cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're in the, the latter part of that now. He was at the beginning of it. And he's therefore quite near to us in time compared to those other Adams. Because as we know, humankind has existed for several hundreds of thousands of years. And even perhaps beyond that. So he was, uh, he's our most recent Adam, if, if you wish. 
uh, who's mentioned in the Holy Quran. And Allah calls this Adam in Surah uh, Al-Baqarah, which is chapter 2, verse 31. He says, Inni ja'ilun fil ardi khalifa. I am about to place a successor, a khalifa, in the earth. So a successor to whom? If he's the first man, then how can he be a successor? He must be a successor to somebody else. So this is uh, you know, one indication showing that you know, he's not the first. But the answer of the angels is also revealing. They say, are you going to place therein such as will cause disorder in it and shed blood? Now how did they know that? They must have seen it happen before. So they're saying, you're not going to put another of them on earth, are you? You know, because they've seen what happens. So Allah tells them that I know what you do not know. So basically the answer is that I, it's true that every time there is an Adam who comes, blood is shed and disorder is created, mm -hmm. but he's not the cause of it. It's the opposing forces who create all these things, the evil that you see. He's not the cause. But it is true that these things do occur every time a prophet is sent, and in particular an Adam who's mm -hmm. starting off the whole system or the whole cycle, you see. So the Adam spoken of in the Holy Quran, is, who is called the Prophet, is not the first human being. I think that's <laughs> very clear and my thanks also to Abdul Rahman Saab for his question. Um, Pakistan is our next destination, Islamabad, and our questioner there is Latif Shahid Saab. Assalamu alaikum Latif Saab, thank you for your uh, question and also your Good wishes to Dr. Malbi Abdul Wahab bin Adam Sahib, and you know, we will, of course, convey your best wishes and uh, salams to him as well. Um, Dr. Saab, his question is about suffering and, uh, and the soul, and he actually writes that every soul has to die and cannot live forever. But then, why do people have to suffer severe sickness before they die? Why can't death just come about without suffering? Um, the number of, as he describes them, lucky people who die suddenly without much suffering, he suggests is not huge. Uh, I'm not sure what the statistical evidence is of that as well, and nor do we have that here. But generally speaking, this whole concept of suffering and death, um, is there a, I, I, sug I, I suggest he's asking actually, why do people in essence have to suffer? and? Uh, the lucky ones are those who don't suffer. Is that necessarily the case? Well, s suffering is such a, a relative term and it has to be understood from that perspective. And uh, you're asking a dentist what suffering is because we are stereotyped as causing pain. <laughs> <The drill>. uh, <laughs> yes, one of and our stereotypes. Before you even get going. Yeah. Exactly, absolutely. But we most, more like to think of it about removing pain in our profession. But yes, s suffering, I mean, for one person, uh, it, it, something could be suffering, like a, a little prick on a finger could be suffering, and whereas another person who is actually going through a lot of uh, treatment for his perhaps cancers is suffering another type of pain. But they're not only physical types of suffering, there could be mental suffering and psychological suffering that, that one d does have in, in the world that we live in. But what we also always have to remember is that man is very short-sighted and he can only see that the life that he has on this earth mm -hmm. as being the entire entire plan of his life whereas we we know that that is not the case that there is an eternal life that man actually is going to be given once we pass away from from this earth and when when death meets us 
and that is an eternal life. So when you consider those two and, and consider the rel relativity in terms of that, the time that we spend on this, this earth is like the fleeting of a moment as, as is described in the Holy Quran. So that whatever we, we pass through in this world, suffering or non-suffering, is, is a very minute, minute proportion of the entire life. However, we, we also know that when man tends to suffer, he also has the opportunity to seek repentance and to seek forgiveness from God Almighty. Mm -hmm. So it could be that man has been given opportunities by Allah the Almighty through his suffering, that he remembers God Almighty and is able to turn to him and to seek forgiveness from, from Allah in, in that respect. So this could be an opportunity that is given to him, despite him be, be, being a believer, that he has an opportunity that he's still going to be tried by God Almighty. So this life on this earth is a trial for us. And some people actually have to undertake a greater trial for, than others. And perhaps it may be that because of the trial and because of the greater suffering that they may have encountered upon this earth, that God Almighty in the life hereafter will actually reward them abundantly for the suffering that they undertook in this, in the, in this life. Whereas those people who may die uh, suddenly without any suffering do not have that opportunity, that window of seeking forgiveness and seeking repentance from God Almighty. So we have to look at it as being a bigger canvas of life, of an eternal life. And therefore this is only one small corner, one small dot on that canvas, whereas we know that it's going to be a much bigger picture that we will decide our suffering or our ease. And, and that is how we should always consider these opportunities. We know that even prophets of God, you know, have also encountered lives similar to that, mm -hmm. that they have suffered before they have passed away. So we, we cannot say that they are God's chosen people, yes. but God Almighty in His wisdom perhaps has given them an opportunity also in, in that respect to take, make use of this uh, opportunity to seek His closeness and seek His repentance and seek His forgiveness in that element of time mm -hmm. as well. If I could just widen the question somewhat, this concept of suffering and widening it to say trial and tribulation, that quite often we find, if anything, it, it strengthens resolve, it strengthens conviction, as Dr. Saab said, sometimes it allows strength, looking at death specifically, sometimes there have been instances where someone has fallen ill and they've actually had an opportunity uh, to meet with people and loved ones etc and almost prepare others around them as well as themselves and and then die away peacefully as they say but in the same time widening it as I said with trials and tribulations often we find that strengthens people's resolve rather than weakens it just as everything else does mm -hmm. if you see the, the trials and tribulations that the immune system has to go through for example then we might think that that's a terrible thing for it but actually it strengthens it every time mm -hmm. Every time there's an attack from outside, the immune system in the human body becomes stronger. And uh, it's very much the same in anything. For example, in education, the harder the exams, the, the tougher the person becomes in, in everything, in resolve, in knowledge, in, in you know, uh, self-confidence, etc. So testing is actually very, very important. And Allah actually mentions this in the Holy Quran. And He says in, uh, in the, the 29th chapter, verse 3, He says, do men think that they will be left alone just because they say we believe and that they will not be tested? So saying that they believe doesn't mean that 
you know, people could say that, okay, I've accepted the Prophet Sallallahu now, so now, you know, I'm going to have a, you know, a rosy life and everything's mm. going to be easy. Mm. Allah says, not at all. Now you're going to be tested. And it's only then that you're going to prove your mettle and you're going to prove that you are true by remaining steadfast and growing, you know, all that, you know, just that little bit more every time you go through another trial. And these trials, as Dr. Saba said, can go right down to the time of death. And we've seen that, you know, if prophets had to do that, we know that the Holy Prophet Sallallahu as Dr. Saba alluded to, he'd, he'd suffered terribly before he, he died. If, if dying suddenly, dropping dead, as they say, had been lucky, then surely the, the prophets would have been more in luck than anybody else. But Allah chose to make some of them, at least to our knowledge, die, you know, difficult deaths. Um, so these, these trials and tribulations are an essential part of the development of the soul. The soul also needs to go through different kinds of afflictions and trials and tribulations and tests for it to be able to emerge more, you know, strengthened in every, in every respect and more ready as well, readier, if I could say, to, to, uh, to face the next life, you see. So this is the, the, the raison d'etre, if you want, of all these afflic afflictions in this world. It's so that the soul could be, you know, more prepared to enter into the next phase of its existence, which is in the afterlife. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah, and my thanks also to uh, Latif Saab for uh, your question. Um, we're going to go back to Ghana, uh, to Abdul Rashid Amin Sahib for our next question. He took up on uh, or took up an issue which totally changing the subjects altogether is one of allegations against the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and we've had uh, programs in the past where we've specifically focused on that but this is a allegation which some have made which is about the succession uh, the concept of Khalafat the spiritual succession uh, or within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and he's writing that there are some who allege that if the promised Messiah, al-Islam, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, led, and indeed his mission was of a divine nature, he led a divine community. His successors, apart from Hazrat Malvi Nuruddin Sahib, who was the first successor, of course, apart from him, all the others have been from the family of Hazrat Promised Messiah. And the only reason he, the allegation so goes, and we of course don't subscribe to it, is that Hazrat Malvi Nuruddin Sahib was chosen was because there was no one of an age to take on this succession. Um, that's the allegation. Um, Dr. Saab, if I could start with you, perhaps just t picking up on that point of the time historically after the passing, the sad passing away of Hazrat Promised Messiah, this issue of Khilafat and this issue of succession was something which was actually not just within Amdiya interpretation of Islam, but is within the context of Islam at its very core. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Khilafat is something that uh, has succeeded every prophethood. This is the promise of Allah, and this is how the works of the Khalifa, uh, how the works of the Prophet are taken forward by the Khalifa. And we found that in the history of Islam after the demise of the Holy Prophet and we have found the same with regard to the Imam of the age who was prophesied by the Holy Prophet would come and that his Khilafat, there would be Khilafat that would follow him. So the Khilafat is on the precepts of prophethood and has been promised and prophesied by the Holy Prophet 
So the, uh, what we can also say is the Khilafat of the Ahmadiyya community is actually a continuation, in fact, of the Khilafat of the Holy Prophet ﷺ. And often allegations are raised against the community, as you have rightly said. And these allegations actually have no substance and they don't even consider to go back into history and to look at the time of the Holy Prophet ﷺ and they find the answers to these allegations actually in history, in the history of Islam to that degree. As far as Khilafat is concerned, when the Promised Messiah ﷺ passed away, we know that his eldest son, Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmad was 18, 19 years of age at that time. So he actually was of an age that he could have been, had it been inherited, could have been the natural choice of being the Khalifa at that time. Khilafat is actually that is given by God. It is not something that man takes uh, of his own free will. Just to pick up on that point, and it's an important distinction we draw between Khilafat and, say, uh, succession in, for a monarchy, that there, if a child is even under 18, you know, that there's someone who's appointed, if you like, as a guardian over that. But nevertheless, that a an individual would go on and be so. This, if this was a case of a natural succession, and notwithstanding any age of be absolutely, it a child or, or a young man, that that would have happened. And clearly, this wasn't the case. Absolutely, with we are categoric in that, both from the history of Islam as far as and as far as the Khilafat of the Ahmadiyya community is concerned that it is not an inherited successorship as such. It is something that is decided on a very different pattern as we have seen in, in Jamaat Ahmadiyya over the 100 years of Khilafat. So had it been a natural inherited succession and the, uh, the eldest son of the Prophet Messiah at that time, as Mr. Bashir bin Mahdav, was 18, 19 years of age, he would have been, he would have been the natural successor. Even Hazrat Malvi Nuruddin, the companion of the Prophet Messiah who actually became the first Khalifa, he was of the opinion that he was, his son should be the appointed as the Khalifa. But that is not what we, what we saw, is that we saw that there was a consensus, in fact a type of an election, uh, that by which the first Khalifa was elected at that time, who was the close companion of the Promised Messiah and who people around them thought would be the best person to lead the community uh, and to continue the mission of the Promised Messiah Let us go back in fact in history and see the four Khalifas that followed the Holy Prophet and we find the answer and the answer to the allegation exactly in that. All of them, all four, were actually family members closely related to the Holy Prophet We have Hazrat Abu Bakr. Yes, he was a long time friend of the Holy Prophet But he also was the father-in-law of the Holy Prophet because Hazrat Aisha, his daughter, was married to the Holy Prophet He was then succeeded by Hazrat Umar Now Hazrat Umar's daughter, Hazrat Hafsa was actually the married to the Holy Prophet. So in that sense, Hazrat Umar is also a family member, closely related by being the father-in-law again. Then the third Khalifa, Hazrat Usman, you know, it gets even better. He actually is known as Zunnurain, that two of the daughters of the Holy Prophet were one after the other, were married to Hazrat Usman. So he was the son-in-law. I mean, how closer can you get? Son-in-law was twice also over. twice over, mm -hmm. you know. And then the fourth Khalifa, he was not only the cousin 
first cousin of the Holy Prophet He was also the son-in-law of the Holy Prophet Hazrat Fatima was married to him. So all four Khulafa of after the Holy Prophet were family members, were closely related to the Holy Prophet So that is the allegation is that we have in the history of Islam a clear example that Khilafat was not inherited what was given to the person who people thought would be the best Khalifa of the time. And history then bears out the successes of both the Khilafat periods. And we, with hindsight, can say that we have seen the success. We saw the success of Islam during that golden period in Islam. And we have now seen the success of the Ahmadiyya community and the propagation of the message of the Promised Messiah to all the corners of the earth through this blessed scheme of Khilafat, which has been bestowed upon the Jamaat Ahmadiyya. We have an electoral college by which these people are elected. And we have people who have dreams, who have never met these people, who have been shown by dreams that these are the rightly guided leaders of the community. And therefore, we can say that this is something that is God-given. And it is Allah for Allah to decide onto whom he gives this blessing and who actually gets this this mantle given to them. Dr. Saad, very comprehensive answer. Just one element, if I could pick up with on with yourself, Jang yourself. Just the context of family members and those in close proximity to the prophets, and this is with every prophet concerned, but focusing specifically within Islam. Uh, Dr. Saad very eloquently talked about the time of the Holy Prophet. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and his successors being family members. And it is also a fact that we have an electoral college, of course, within the Amdiya Muslim community. But four out of the five successors are members directly descended from Hazrat Promised Messiah's family, indeed our current Khalifa, Hazrat Mirza Musra Ramad, is a grandson, great-grandson of the founder of the community. And the allegations made, oh, this is, again, a family thing. You're keeping it there. But surely you're judged by and also you're influenced by the company you keep. And there is a strong argument to be made there as well. There is, and this is perhaps why we see, even in the Holy Quran, there were certain families who are mentioned specifically as being a fam families of prophets. We have the case of, of uh, Sayyidina Ibrahim Two of his sons, Ishaq and Ismail were prophets. After them, the son of Ishaq, Yaqub, he was a prophet. After him, Yusuf was a prophet. And so the line of prophets continued like this you know, throughout their family. And this is uh, something which happens because when you live in the proximity of a blessed, you know, uh, uh, illuminated being who is a prophet, then you will tend, if you have goodness inside, you will tend to take on that light and take on that color. And so it wouldn't be surprising if people among that you know, elect group themselves, you know, come to the fore later on as his successors. It stands to reason. But there's one point which I wanted to make, apart from the fact that, as Dr. Saab has already said, that this is something which Allah gives. And he says, You know, this is Allah's grace. He gives it to whomsoever he pleases. It's not for men to decide who should receive his grace. This allegation is, not, is a slight variation on, this, on, a, on, a, on an old theme, which is, why did God choose this person as a prophet? Mm -hmm. Now it's, why did he choose those people who are of his family as his successors? Mm -hmm. 
It's not for men to choose, it's for Allah to choose. And as Dr. Sahib has said, Allah shows people even in dreams who the next person is going to be, even though they don't know the person. Mm-hmm. So this is definitely from, from Allah. But the, the thing is, is that uh, people, you know, they, they, they jump from one, one thing to the next and they forget that the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallam himself had made a prophecy of a kind about this phenomenon which is going to happen. When he was speaking of the, the, this uh, event, a great event in the history of Islam, where Iman faith would have gone up to the heavens, so to speak, and that somebody would, bring it, would reach it again to bring it back for mankind, therefore, he said, لَوْ كَانَ الْإِيمَانُ مُعَلَّقًا لَنَالُهُ رَجُلٌ أَوْ رِجَالٌ مِنْ Placing his hand on the shoulder of Salman al-Farsi, Salman the Persian, may Allah be pleased with him, the only non-Arab present then, and who happened to be a Persian as well. He said, even if, if faith, and we've sp- spoken of this so many times on Faith Matters before, if faith goes up to the, to the, the, the Pleiades, then a man or men from among these will, will reach it. You know, and meaning bring it back, you know. So he's speaking of one man or men. So that means that there will be others as well, but it will be as if this one man and these men are all one. It's like all of them are one man, really. And this is exactly the case. The, the real person is the Promised Messiah and the others are his successors who continue his, his good works, who continue his plans, who continue whatever he launched and bring it to its fruition. So, therefore, this phenomenon was already prophesied by the Prophet So they should expect to see it today, and they shouldn't be sitting making allegations against this phenomenon. Whereas, as Dr. Sahib has rightly said, the very same could be said of the Prophet himself. And this is one of the, I'm tempted to say, the beauty of these allegations. It is that all the allegations which they level against the Promised Messiah in one form or another, can be leveled against the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu as well. And this might sound like a tall claim because there were certain things which seemed to be very person-specific mm-hmm. uh, regarding the Prophet Sallallahu but not at all. If we go into the principle of the matter, we'll see that those allegations, if they're, you know, they're kind of reworded slightly, they will be used against the Prophet Sallallahu again. So that they're, they're, they're cutting out the very branch they're sitting on. So people really should reflect and they should go back to the past, as Dr. Saab had been saying, and go and see what happened then to be able to understand the present. Gentlemen, Zakamlah to you both, of course, and my thanks also to Abdul Rashid Amin Sahib for your question, uh, very, very comprehensively dealt with by both Jahangir Saab and Dr. Zahid Khan Sahib. Um, we're going to Bangladesh for our next one. We really are going around the world in this program today to Sadiq Rahim Saab from Chittagong in Bangladesh. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for your kind comments and also your question. <clears throat> His question, a deeply sort of philosophical one, um, talks about death and destiny, Dr. Saab. And is everyone, uh, we often somewhat lightly talk about that the only certainty in life is death. Mm. Yet within that, it's often said that those people, whatever faith, not just within Islam, that uh, death is predetermined. So there is a time assigned for you by God Almighty that that is the time that you will pass what people of faith believe to uh, the the different world and a better world indeed. 
Is that fact? It's a simple question, but a most intriguing one because there are so many facets and aspects to it and one that perhaps requires deep thought as well. But the Holy Quran is very specific, as you have rightly mentioned, that uh, of all things, death is perhaps the one that we are assured of that does occur. Mm-hmm. And the Holy Quran actually mentions that Kullu nafsin that every soul will meet death. Uh, and that is not the only reference that is made to it, but reference in relation to the Holy Prophet wasallam is also made that uh, no soul can, uh, uh, and if thou should die, you think that they will live. These are uh, rhetorical questions as well that are put to it. And interestingly, even with that simple basis, we can prove the death of Jesus salam to our uh, non-Ahmadi brothers and to the Christians as well, that every soul has to die and that includes all the prophets that have gone, gone beyond him. The Holy Quran also makes reference to a period of time that Allah has fixed, uh, has appointed a limit to the lifespan of a person. Mm-hmm. So this is the Holy Quran reference as well, is that every person has a limit which, from which beyond that he cannot traverse. So these, these are things that are set by Allah the Almighty and man has a certain amount of flexibility, if you can say, within, within that, depending upon how his life evolves throughout. throughout. And we can take into, into account natural things that may happen around him mm-hmm. and also natural things that may be occurring to that person as well uh, and unnatural things that may, he, he, he may subject himself as well. So we have to take all of these factors in, into account and then Allah decides as to when that soul will actually die, depending on how he has lived his lifestyle. We are talking in terms of perhaps uh, ailments that he may have encountered because of either his surroundings, perhaps of radiation we can talk of, or whether he has subjected himself to dangers of illness through smoking and so, so on. So a time, a, 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 a period we can say has been fixed by Allah and then it depends upon the person's own lifestyle as to when his life is going to end within that time. So these are limits that have been prescribed and, and we have to look at this answer, taking all of that in, into account. That yes, there is a, uh, a limit that is prescribed by Allah beyond which man will not go. But then beyond, before that, it does depend on many factors which he may encounter during the lifetime of his, of his lifespan. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm turning to yourself, Jangi Sab, on this issue. I mean, this whole issue is, you know, you can, let, let's take an example of someone who's agnostic or atheist. They will argue with a person of faith is, yes, well, I, I, can, I, I can choose even my time of death. It's my, life is about choices, you know, from birth parents maybe making a choice for an infant in schools and early schooling and nurseries. And then an individual, for example, it's a choice, you know, do I go to the university in Scotland or in, in Yorkshire or in London, wherever, Oxford, or that's about choices. Um, and then so on and so forth. Indeed, in Parliament, if I can make it sort of uh, quite focused, one of the bills, a private member bill, which is coming for us to debate at the moment is called Dignity in Dying. It is looking at the whole concept of people who are suffering from such severe ailments, um, who are actually ill to the extent of 
they actually now feel that the pain is beyond them or indeed they are now terminally ill and feel that they want to choose their own time so the of, of dying. Absolutely. <laughs> be it voluntary or assisted. And that is, it's a life question, not just here in the UK, but across the world as well. And how, do we, how is that tied up with the case then of someone saying, actually, I'm going to choose this specific day, literally of my death, because that's the day I wish to die um, because of my condition, vis-a-vis -vis what people of faith hold to be true, that God has already predetermined what that day will be? Well, I think Dr. Saab has explained it very lucidly. And if you followed the logic, then you will understand that, that people can choose their time of death with, within the period which has been fixed by God, which is the maximum period, and that particular person can live. So if they decide to die when they're 20, they commit suicide, they'll die. Mm. Whereas they might have lived up to maybe 90, because that was the, the period fixed by God. However, they can't cross that. So the, the, des the destined time which is misunderstood even by people of faith, is not necessarily the time where the person actually dies. Mm -hmm. the, des the predestined time is the, the ultimate limit of that person's life, which it could have been, had the person looked after themselves properly. Mm -hmm. So this is the ultimate destined period, beyond which one cannot go. So it means that if all your cards are, are you know, stuck carefully and properly on the table, then the maximum you can do is whatever God has fixed for you. But if you've messed them up a bit, then chances are you're going to die a little before that. But you will, under no circumstances, go beyond that, because that has been predetermined. And there is a predetermination of, a, of, of, a, of sorts in our, our genes also. We know that, for example, when cells um, uh, duplicate themselves, they always lose something. It's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. And you see the same in a photocopying machine. If you put a, uh, an original in, you get a copy which is slightly worse off than the original. If you take that copy and then make a copy from that, it, the second copy will be even worse. And the same happens to portions of, of our DNA every time a copy is made of a cell. And it reaches a point where it cannot copy itself anymore because the deterioration is then, it reaches the ultimate point, mm -hmm. and therefore it will die. And, and this has been seen, for example, in the case of um, cloned animals. For example, if they take an animal, which is, let's say, a sheep, it's already two years old, they clone it, they've found to their dismay that the animals which are created from that animal, which, is ex which are genetically exactly identical to the, the parent, so-called parent animal, will die at approximately the same time as the parent animal. Because the cells within that animal were going to live for a certain period, beyond which they can't go. So even the clones can't go beyond that either. So it doesn't mean that the parent animal was going to live for six years. So it had already lived two. There were four left. That the clone is now born two years after the, the, the parent was. It's going to live for another six years. No, it won't. It'll live another four. So this is, I mean, this has been seen, you know, uh, scientifically, you know, proven that this is what happens. And so cloning isn't all that of a, of a, of a bargain, because you only get what you, what you had already. It won't go beyond that. So this is the Ajal Musamma, which is talked about in the Holy Quran. It is the, the absolute final limit of, of the age beyond which nobody can go. And destiny, therefore, what is it? It's, it's difficult to, to say. 
Because we don't know what the Ajal Musamma is. We can only guess that maybe if that person hadn't smoked, that the, the person would have lived longer. But that's only Allah who knows. And this is why Allah says in the Quran, no soul knows where it will die. People make big plans, I'm going to go back to my home country and I'm going to die there. But they die en route. Mm. Or they die in the, in the country of adoption. Mm-hmm. Or maybe in another place that they didn't even dream of that, they, that they're going to die there. Nobody knows. So these are the things mm. which God destines for the person, which are beyond the person's control. But there is an element of control there. They can live their lives in a good way or they can live it in a bad way, an, a, a, a noxious way, which will be to the detriment of their own health and their own bodies. And therefore they will die before, chances are they'll die before the Ajal Musamma. So this, this is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a complex yeah. question to understand. It is, and I, I suppose, Zakhmullah, for that, Dr. Sahib, you could extend it slightly further, that it's not necessarily the consequences of your own actions. Someone could be leading a very good life, be perfectly innocent, be caught up in, I don't know, an armed robbery somewhere and get, you know, shot in the process and die as a consequence. I, I'm thinking aloud, you know, people who fight for their country, you know, who go out and you know, give a commitment, stand up and fight for their, their country as they choose in their armies and forces, who then also at a very young age often, as we've sat, found here in the UK, who die out in the field at very young ages. And as you rightly say, Jahangir Saab, their bodies are probably some of the most, <coughs> in terms of fitness and you know, can probably take quite extreme conditions, yet find themselves and tragically you know, are killed in, in conflict. There are certain situations which are beyond our control. Um, we, we may think that, yes, um, if we are put into that sort of conflict, then the chances of meeting our death are going to be greater. But at the same time, there are other situations uh, throughout the world where it may be a very peaceful neighborhood, and therefore you find that uh, some atrocity is committed, and, and, you, and, you've, and you meet your death at that time. And this is how Allah says that no one knows as to when and where and how they're going to meet their death in, in that respect. It is only Allah who knows, and therefore the circumstances may play a part in the role of that death of that person. And with that, we come to the end of today's program. I would like to thank our panelists and say Jazakumullah to them for their very detailed and scholarly answers on an array of questions on a variety of different issues. And if you haven't found the answer to your question, you know what to do. Email us on faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk.